I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome to the Evidence-Based Hair Podcast for the April 11th, 2022 issue, Season 1, Episode 10. Evidence-Based Hair is a podcast produced by the Donovan Hair Academy and highlights new research in the field of hair loss. We'll use our time together not only to talk about what's new, but we'll reflect together on how all this new information ties in with what we've come to learn in the past. And we'll think carefully about where we're going in the future as a hair loss community. I'll also use various studies that I'll talk about as a pivot point to discuss key diagnostic pearls and treatment tips that hopefully allow us all to become better practitioners. Each week there'll be one or two topics that I'll dive a little deeper into. These are topics that i really like you to know about. This week we'll be talking about a complication of tinea capitis, erythema nodosum. We'll be talking a little more about tinea capitis as well. This podcast was created for practitioners of various backgrounds, but regardless of whether you care for patients with hair loss or simply care about the topic of hair loss, this podcast will be of interest. This podcast was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice. The second Monday of each month is dedicated to the four T's, telogen effluvium, traction alopecia, trichotillomania, and tinea capitis. Today we'll review seven studies from the past month or two in this particular area. We'll begin by talking about telogen effluvium and we'll review some interesting studies recently regarding the relationship between COVID-19 and hair shedding. And we'll move on to talk about proton pump inhibitors, one of the more common drugs prescribed around the world. We'll look at the risk of iron deficiency in those that use proton pump inhibitors and we'll talk a little more in general about PPIs. Then we'll go on to talk about trichotillomania What exactly is the effects of the pandemic on children with trichotillomania? The stress of the pandemic is quite uh, significant and a variety of mental health issues are affecting children. We'll take a look at this important subject and then we'll go on to talk about tinea capitis or fungal infections of the scalp. We'll take a look at this, this complication erythema nodosum, which is a rash on the shins that is caused by infection, by medications, and by some systemic illnesses. But tinea capitis can cause erythema nodosum. We'll take a look at this phenomenon together. And then we'll talk about tinea capitis in infants. Tinea capitis usually occurs in children age five, six, seven, eight, nine. How do you treat it when it affects a three-month-old or a 12-month-old and what are the features? We'll take a look at a very fascinating report of tinea capitis in infants. The references for all these studies are in the show notes that accompany the episode. So let's begin then by talking about telogen effluvium. Are you seeing a lot of patients who have hair shedding after COVID-19? Well, I certainly am. I certainly wonder every day if I'm seeing less patients with Omicron and the Omicron variants compared to the early days of COVID-19. But it's certainly not clear. But what we do know is that COVID-19 presents a risk for telogen effluvium. So I'd like to review three studies in this regard. 
In episode two, we talked about post-COVID telogen effluvium, as well as in the uh, March uh, second week as well. There's three studies I'd like to review with you. The first is a study from Italy by Minari and colleagues. This was a hospital-based cross-sectional study of patients who were discharged from hospital after COVID pneumonia. This was a study from the early days of the pandemic. These were patients that were in hospital March 1st to April 4th, 2020. So these were the very early days when uh, COVID-19 was, was affecting many parts of the world, but especially Italy at that time. And so there were 96 patients in this particular study. The mean age of patients was 59, and 64% were male and 35% were female. Patients were hospitalized for an average of 13 days. They had had fever for an average duration of 11 days. And in hospital, patients received a variety of treatments. Steroids, azithromycin, anticoagulants, hydroxychloroquine, oxygen, various antivirals. It's interesting reading this paper. These are the, the early months of the pandemic, and we really didn't have a good idea of how to treat COVID-19. And very fascinating how intensely these patients were treated and how well they were treated in the hospital in Italy at this time. Uh, they, they really received you know, excellent care. But hair loss occurred in 30 of the 96 patients, or about 31% of patients had post-COVID hair loss. 73% of patients were female with post-COVID hair loss. 26% were male. And the average time from their fever to the onset of hair loss in these patients was 68 days. In females, it was an average of 72 days. In males, it was quicker than an average of 54 days in those males that were affected. 26% of patients that had telogen effluvium after COVID-19 had trichodynia, or hair pain. Trichodynia is this phenomenon whereby patients develop a whole bunch of symptoms in the scalp that are very confusing, burning, tingling, tenderness to move the hair. It's becoming very clear that this is a symptom of post-COVID telogen effluvium, but this was recognized in this study from these patients back in 2020. What was interesting in this study is there was no association between severity of illness, hospitalization, fever, types of therapy received, and telogen effluvium. And so we have two types of studies in the literature we have studies whereby the severity of the COVID infection seems to be associated with shedding. And then we have studies where the severity of infection doesn't seem to be associated with the chances of shedding. And this is a study whereby the severity of infection didn't seem to correlate well with the chances of telogen effluvium. Granted, this was a small study, but nevertheless, we do have these two types of studies in the medical literature. So I like this study. It, it really reminds us that post-COVID telogen effluvium can occur in 30 to 50% of patients, at least with the early variants that we've seen of COVID-19. Whether it occurs in 30 to 50% of patients with Omicron and the Omicron variants, which are more infectious, less severe, they tend to be less severe, we don't know. But those are the numbers, certainly, for the variants of COVID in 2020 and 2021 that we've come to study so far. But I like this study as well because trichodynia 
was present in 25% of patients. And that's really an important thing that I deal with in clinic every day is this, not only the shedding, but the scalp pain that patients have. It can be very confusing and, and quite troublesome. And if you joined us in February, we talked on February 14th, episode number two, about a study by Müller-Ramos of 5,891 patients, a really large study of post-COVID hair loss. These were patients that had largely been treated at home, although some had been treated for COVID-19 in the hospital. But in that study, Dr. Müller-Ramos and colleagues showed that females were more affected than males, had a five-fold greater risk, but trichodynia was present in about 25% of patients. So very similar to this study I just reviewed. And in that study, the severity of COVID-19 did seem to correlate with the severity of hair loss. So we have these two types of studies. I'd like to review a study now, which also suggested that the severity of COVID-19 infection correlated with the chances of telogen effluvium. And this was a study of COVID pneumonia. So authors from Italy in this study set out to evaluate whether the severity of COVID pneumonia tied in with the severity of telogen effluvium. They evaluated 104 patients who had recovered from COVID-19 pneumonia. 77% were in the ICU, 23% had been treated at home for their COVID, and they analyzed the amount of hair loss based on a visual scale so they asked patients to rate from 1 to 9 how much hair loss they felt that they had. 32 patients reported a history of telogen effluvium. So again, we're in the same ballpark of between 30 and 40% of patients having post-COVID telogen effluvium. The mean shedding score on a scale of 1 to 9 was 5.78, so quite moderate amounts of shedding. Women had a five-fold higher risk of having telogen effluvium in this study compared to males. And interestingly, this association between COVID-19 and shedding became even stronger when you looked at the severity of COVID-19. So patients that were hospitalized had a greater risk of shedding than those at home. And patients that used methylprednisolone in the hospital or blood thinners or hydroxychloroquine had a 15-fold increased risk of shedding. Now, this may reflect the severity of illness as opposed to these medications itself, but they're certainly important subjects. We do know that some blood thinners can cause shedding. Some uh, high doses of uh, steroids can cause shedding. And the doses of hydroxychloroquine used for COVID were generally a little bit higher than the 6 milligram per kilogram used in the uh, rheumatologic literature. So, you know, we have to keep that in mind, but it may reflect the severity of the patient's illness. But what I really liked about this study is they went on to do something different than other studies have done. And that is they looked at a variety of cytokines and lab tests to see are any of these lab tests correlated with the chance of shedding? And the answer is, is most weren't. Most lab tests were not that different in patients with severe COVID-19 compared to those with mild COVID-19. But the one protein they looked at was interleukin-1-beta. And interleukin-1-beta is part of the interleukin-1 family, which gets increased in fever. It activates lymphocytes. 
But interleukin-1 beta is also an interesting molecule because it can inhibit hair growth. And so they found that patients with a higher level of interleukin-1 beta had a higher chance of telogen effluvium. It wasn't a real close link, but there was a suggestion that of all these long lists of factors they looked at, that maybe interleukin-1 beta might suggest an increased risk of telogen effluvium. Again, not a super close link, so it's not as simple as just measuring interleukin-1 beta and we can tell if a person's going to shed. The link is not that close. I like this study. It, it really reminds us again that there are cases where the severity of infection does seem to tie in with the chances of telogen effluvium. These authors were looking for markers of increased chances of shedding. So it seems women are at increased risk. Maybe increased severity of infection could be associated with increased risk. And now we have some markers, interleukin-1-beta. Finally, another COVID study I'd like to review, and that's a study that was published in January, a study from Mexico looking at post-COVID syndrome, which also goes by the name long COVID, which also goes by the name post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2, or PASC. So you're probably aware that long COVID has come to refer to this cluster of symptoms and signs that patients have. It's a really relevant issue. It's thought that there's perhaps at least 100 million people in the world, maybe more, that have had long COVID or have long COVID right now. So it's really a relevant issue. And a variety of symptoms are possible. And these particular authors group them into eight different categories. But in total, there's 48, 50 different symptoms that patients can experience after COVID-19 ranging from depression to sleep disturbances to poor smell and poor taste, muscle pains, cough, joint pains, fatigue. And so this is the post-COVID syndrome or long COVID that very much is an intense research subject right now. How do we treat post-COVID or long COVID? Uh, the answer is we don't know. Fortunately, in some patients, it, it does eventually go away but not in all patients. So it's a really important issue worldwide. But the authors of this study from Mexico sought to obtain data on the symptoms patients were feeling after they left the hospital. So it was a really interesting study. They performed telephone calls after patients left the hospital for the first 90 days after discharge. So they initially had 4,670 patients who said, yes, I will participate in your study. And over the next three months, the number of patients who answered their phone calls dwindled quite a bit. But there were 21,000 phone calls that were made between September 2020 and January 2021. And initially, there was over 3,900 patients that picked up the phone. And then by day 90, it was down to about 928. But in hospital and and after hospital, they were able to identify about 45 symptoms that patients with COVID-19 experienced. And they grouped these into eight clusters. Neurological problems, mood disorders, systemic issues, respiratory or breathing issues, musculoskeletal issues, ear, nose and throat issues, dermatologic issues, mainly hair loss, and gastrointestinal issues. So most patients had symptoms at day 30 and 90. 76% of patients had at least one of these 45 symptoms at day 30, 
and 68% had these symptoms at day 90. So this post-COVID or long COVID is, is relevant. A lot of patients are having symptoms even out at three months. Between day 30 and day 90, most patients found that their symptoms were decreasing. They were having fewer symptoms and they were less intense. Fatigue, cough, chest pain, muscle pain, dizziness, this, this seemed to improve. Some features increased between day 30 and 90, and hair loss was one of those features that increased between day 30 and 90. And so most issues saw improvement between day 30 and day 90, but hair loss was one of the important exceptions. And the authors showed in this study that women were more likely to develop long COVID than men. Women had a higher risk of developing neurological issues as part of their long COVID, musculoskeletal issues, hair loss, and mood disorders. So the constellation of symptoms that makes up long COVID seems to affect women to a greater extent than men. But in this particular study, hair loss affected a greater number of women than men. And hair loss affected about twice the number or proportion of women than men. And so it reminds me of a study that we reviewed in episode two, looking at long COVID. There have been studies in the past looking at long COVID and hair shedding. And these studies have shown that women are affected to a greater degree by long COVID. They have more hair loss, more fatigue, more shortness of breath, more sleeping issues, more depression. And so these issues affect women to a greater extent than men. The reasons are not clear. But these are very important issues as we go along in the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we'll leave COVID-19 for now. These are relevant issues. We'll revisit them in the months ahead. They're important for us to understand. A lot of patients with COVID-19 are asymptomatic. When you have patients coming into clinic with shedding issues, hey doc, I'm shedding. We have to order iron and thyroid and B12. We have to ask about stress. We have to ask about diets. We have to remember that many patients can have COVID-19 and not know it and present five to 10 weeks later with shedding. And so it's still very much a relevant issue in our world. So let's talk about proton pump inhibitors. I really like this study in current reviews in clinical experimental pharmacology from March 2022. There's a meta-analysis looking at the risk of iron deficiency with proton pump inhibitors. Iron deficiency is, of course, important because if the ferritin level goes low enough, you can get hair shedding. Now, there is no magic cutoff. Some people will get hair shedding if the ferritin goes below 22. Some people will get hair shedding if it goes below 40. That's not common, but it can occur. But most humans get hair shedding when the ferritin goes below 10. And so there's this spectrum, and it varies from person to person, but iron issues are very important. Anybody who comes in with hair loss, we have to test ferritin, thyroid, basic hemoglobin. Now, the reason I'd like to present this study to you is proton pump inhibitors have been shown to cause many micronutrient deficiencies. It's usually not very, very significant in terms of the amount of deficiency they cause, but they can cause iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, zinc deficiency, magnesium deficiency. So we need to know a thing or two about PPIs. And I'm sure in the last month or two, you've seen patients, family members, friends, somebody 
who's on a proton pump inhibitor. 5 to 15% of, of society, adult population is on PPIs, depending on the country you look at. So they're very important medications. They are among the top medications prescribed worldwide. They, they're right up there with, with statins and, and other medications. So PPIs are approved for heartburn, gastroesophageal reflux disease, duodenal ulcers, gastric ulcers, H. pylori infections, and other issues as well. There's lots of PPIs. Pentoprazole, lansoprazole, omeprazole, rebeprazole. All of these medications that end oprazole are likely proton pump inhibitors. And so there's about six or seven of them that are, that are present. These are very relevant medications because they block acid in the stomach. And that's great because by blocking acid, the patient doesn't feel heartburn. But acid is important in the stomach to convert ferric ions to ferrous ions. So it converts iron from the 3 plus form to the 2 plus form. It changes iron ions in the stomach. And it's these ferrous or 2 plus iron forms that get absorbed into the body. And this is data that's been known since the 1940s. This is some fundamental physiology of the human body dating back to the 1940s, where it was realized that iron needs to be in this 2 plus form to be readily absorbed. And what we know is that antacids block this. Some of them block it really well. Uh, Rebeprazole is a wonderful antacid. Uh, other ones like pantoprazole is, is a weaker antacid. But by blocking acid, we impair this ability to convert iron in the ferric form to ferrous form. So in this particular study, the author wanted to know what truly is the relationship between proton pump inhibitor use and the risk of iron deficiency, anemia? So the author looked at 14 studies in the literature. He performed a meta-analysis and found that there was a 2.56-fold increased risk of iron deficiency in those that use proton pump inhibitors. And so this is really an interesting study. I think it, it reminds us that iron deficiency is very much an issue that we need to be thinking about in patients on proton pump inhibitors. Not everyone who's on a PPI has iron deficiency. But it's a fascinating subject area, and if you're not aware of the medical literature around PPI use and side effects, you might want to dive into PubMed or wherever you get your medical studies or, or look on Google. It's a very interesting subject field. The world is coming to understand that PPIs are great for reducing acid, and they do a great job at reducing all of these acid-related side effects. But they may increase the risk of bone fractures, osteoporosis. They may affect the kidney. They may affect the risk of certain infections. They affect the gut microbiome. They cause micronutrient deficiencies, iron, magnesium, B12, zinc, calcium. And they may increase the risk of some cancers, as is being studied now. And so are, there are these side effects with proton pump inhibitors that continue to be studied. Some of them are studied and seem to be refuted. Some of them are studied and continue to be studied because the link seems to be, uh, you know, clearer than, than we once imagined. So there are these side effects with PPIs we need to be aware of, but we need to be aware of the risk of iron deficiency. And these PPIs are different in their ability to suppress acid. And as I mentioned, pentoprazole 
suppresses acid less well than omeprazole, and omeprazole suppresses acid less well than rebeprazole. And there is a little bit of data in the literature that suggests that the risk of iron deficiency increases as you go up in the strength of the PPI and its ability to suppress acid. And so there is a little bit of literature that rebeprazole is associated with a greater risk of iron deficiency than pentoprazole. And so from telogen effluvium, we move to trichotillomania. Are you seeing an increased number of patients in your clinics with trichotillomania? You're probably seeing patients in the clinic with increased stress-related issues. Uh, there's no doubt about it that the COVID pandemic has had various degrees of stress on people. But I'd like to review with you some of the stress-related issues that are affecting children that seem to be pandemic-related. In a study by Wang and colleagues in the World Journal of Pediatrics from February, looking at trichotillomania attributed to the COVID-19 pandemic stress. So trichotillomania is a hair pulling disorder whereby an individual pulls their own hair. A lot of patients with trichotillomania have underlying stress-related issues. Many have depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder. You really need to take a good history in anyone with trichotillomania. A large proportion of patients do have these underlying psychological and psychiatric issues. In younger and younger children, it tends to be more of a habit. As we enter into adolescence and adulthood, the likelihood of having an underlying psychological issue certainly does increase. And it's well accepted that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant impact on children and the mental health of children. And several studies to date in the medical literature have reminded us that the pandemic has negatively impacted those with trichotillomania. Pathulos was a study in the JAD in 2021. This was a study whereby the authors surveyed 460 individuals in July of 2020 who had various body-focused repetitive behaviors, or BFRBs, which includes trichotillomania, nail-biting, skin-picking. In that study, 67% of surveyed patients felt that their body-focused repetitive behaviors were worse during the pandemic. 37% had to interrupt treatment because of the pandemic, and 40% wanted to get into treatment but couldn't because of the pandemic. And again, this was a study from July 2020. So a lot of things were closed. A lot of clinics were operating on telemedicine-type protocols at that time. But 67% felt that their symptoms had worsened. Owner was a study in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology in 2021, whereby the author reported three adolescent females with trichotillomania, aged 12, 13, and 14. And it was felt in this particular study that the social isolation from the inability to attend face-to-face -face learning at school negatively impacted these particular teenagers and impacted the trichotillomania they ultimately had. And so these are some of the studies which have looked at trichotillomania in the COVID-19 pandemic. And the study I'd like to review now by Wang and colleagues adds another study to the medical literature. This was a 13-year-old male with trichotillomania, and the authors proposed that it was his long-time separation from his parents, his lack of activity that contributed to significant stress, and these were contributing factors to this 
individual's trichotillomania. But fortunately, after four weeks of behavioral modification therapy, he didn't require medications, he achieved a full remission. And so this particular study, the reference is in the show notes that accompany this episode. It's available free online. It's available for you to print out and use with Creative Commons license, so it's free for you. And it shows very nicely this pattern of hair loss that was affecting the frontal and mid-scalp in this individual. Trichoscopy showed these flame hairs, these black dots, and these V-hairs, which are key trichoscopic findings of trichotillomania. And he improved dramatically with behavioral therapy. So we need to remember that many children with stress who have very minimal prior psychological psychiatric history often do great. The stress is identified, they're encouraged to modify their behaviors, the child becomes aware of this pattern that had developed, parents become aware, caregivers become aware, and many of these children can do really well. And when the hair pulling stops, hair grows back really quickly. So the COVID pandemic has been really challenging to pediatric patients. It's been challenging, of course, to adults. But Saunders and colleagues published a study this month in JAMA Pediatrics, which I really liked. And it showed a very significant increase in pediatric mental health services during the pandemic. This was a Canadian study, but it really applies to many parts of the world that just outlines the rapid increase in utilization of mental health services in, in children. And so if you're a healthcare practitioner, if you're seeing patients, it's really important to realize that, that children are very significantly affected by the pandemic. And even now, even as things are changing, children are very much affected by the pandemic, and we have to be aware of that. Racine was a study in JAMA Pediatrics in 2021. It was a meta-analysis, and it found a two-fold increased risk of the prevalence of depression and anxiety in children and adolescents around the world. And so the pandemic really is affecting children and adolescents. And when you see children with hair loss, you of course want to take a good history and you want to do a good examination. But, you know, use your trachoscope. There are an increasing number of children that uh, I, I'm seeing with trichotillomania, as well as telogen effluvium, but trichotillomania. Some are subtle, and the only way you can diagnose them readily is with a trichoscope. Sometimes you can't see them clearly just by visualization without a trichoscope. But these are difficult times for everyone worldwide. So from trichotillomania, let's turn finally to tinea capitis. Tinea capitis is a fungal infection of the scalp, particularly an issue in children. But I'd like to talk today about a complication of tinea capitis, erythema nodosum, where patients with tinea capitis develop these rashes on the shins. A very unexpected and bizarre finding that can be very frightening when you see it. And we'll talk about it. We'll talk about tinea capitis in infants. Tinea capitis usually occurs in children 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. It doesn't usually occur in one-year-olds. It doesn't usually occur in three-month-olds. But we'll take a look at two patients, one years of age and three months of age, and how they were treated. So tinea capitis is a fungal infection of the hair. It affects anywhere from 3 to 8% of children. Some parts of the world it's much higher. 
Uh, it can occur up in 19% of children, depending on some areas of the world. But ages 3 to 8 are certainly the most common. There's many different types of tinea capitis. There's a whole bunch of different fungal dermatophyte organisms that can cause it. There's the so-called non-inflammatory presentations, where it can look like dandruff, seborrheic dermatitis. It can look like alopecia areata with black dots. It can just look like a bit of scaling. And then there's these inflammatory forms where it's red, there's pustules, it's boggy, it's got these golf ball shaped domes on the scalp. That's called a carry-on. Or favis, where it's just these massive scales that are, are, are very frightening to look at. What could be causing this child to have such crust on the scalp? So these are the so-called inflammatory variants. So Sala and colleagues in Clinical and Experimental Dermatology in December published a very interesting report looking at erythema nodosum in a patient with carry-on, one of these inflammatory forms. So what is erythema nodosum? Well, it's, it's helpful to know what erythema nodosum is. You can save patients a lot of grief by recognizing what erythema nodosum is, and it has a pretty classic presentation, and that is nodules and bruises on the shins. So erythema nodosum is an inflammatory condition of the fat layer, or the paniculus of the skin. And affected patients develop red lumps and nodules on the front of the shins. It can affect the forearms, it can affect the trunk, the abdomen, it can affect other areas, but the shins are particularly affected. And these patients get these nodules that are either the size of a coin, they can be the size of a grapefruit, and they last a few weeks and then they fade, but new ones can come on as well. They look like bruises. And so when you see an individual with erythema nodosum, it can be frightening. About 1 to 5 out of every 100,000 people develop erythema nodosum. It often affects children and individuals in their 20s. Those are the age groups that are often affected by erythema nodosum. There's a very nice review, which is free, in the Dermatology Online Journal in April 2014 by Blake and colleagues, which outlines some of the features of erythema nodosum. And it's a nice review that's free. And it shows this rash on the shins that can occur in patients with erythema nodosum. Now, when erythema nodosum starts, patients don't have much of a rash, but they have fever, they don't feel well, they have a cough often, and they're, they're kind of sick. And that varies from mildly sick to not sick at all to, to significantly sick. Lab tests might show inflammation, increased ESR, CRP, elevated white blood cell counts. And in about 55% of patients, you can't figure out the cause. You see this rash, you might do a biopsy, it comes back erythema nodosum. You find the inflammation deep down there in the paniculus. The pathologist says it's a septal paniculitis, but you can't find the cause. But there are three big groups of causes. One is infections, of which tinea capitis lives in that group. Medical conditions, which we'll talk about, and medications. So these are the three groups that can cause erythema nodosum. And so when you see erythema nodosum, you have to say to yourself, hmm, I wonder what infection could cause this. I wonder what medical condition might have caused this for my patient. 
And I wonder what medication could have caused this. So let's look at infections. Infections is the most important category. Streptococcal infections are one of the most common causes of erythema nodosum. And so when you see a patient with what you think is erythema nodosum, you have to go do a throat swab. You might do an ASO titer to see if you can identify streptococcus infection. Streptococcal pharyngitis is one of the number one causes of erythema nodosum. 44% of adults have streptococcal infections as the cause. 48% of, of children, pediatric population, so really important. But lots of infections can cause erythema nodosum. Tuberculosis can cause it. So you have to do chest x-rays, you have to do PPD tests to see if a person has been exposed in the past to TB. And a variety of infections have been described. Histoplasmosis, Yersinia, Chlamydia, Hepatitis, HIV, Herpes simplex. And as you can imagine, because we're talking about it today, tinea capitis can cause erythema nodosum. Medical conditions can also cause erythema nodosum. Lymphomas and, and leukemias, blood cancers are certainly on that list. Ulcerative colitis can cause it. Sarcoidosis can cause it in a significant number of cases. Pregnancy is also a cause, and about 5% of patients with erythema nodosum, especially adults, uh, would be pregnant. Antibiotics can cause it as well, especially sulfa drugs and amoxicillin. Oral contraceptives can cause erythema nodosum, and proton pump inhibitors can cause it as well. Wouldn't you believe it? It makes its way to the list of erythema nodosum-causing drugs as well. But there's other medications that cause it as well. So why does it occur? Well, it's thought that the immune system is activated. It's activated by streptococcus. It's activated by the fungus causing tinea capitis. It's activated by the TB. And so the immune system becomes activated. You don't find the infectious particles in the rash on the shins, but you find the inflammation. It's either a delayed type hypersensitivity, type 4 reaction, it might be an antigen-antibody complex mediated reaction in some patients. Lots of theories on why it occurs, and it may be different in different types of erythema nodosum. But here we have this paper in clinical and experimental dermatology looking at erythema nodosum in a patient with carry-on. It's an interesting case. We don't see erythema nodosum often, but these were three patients, male, aged 4, 9, and 14, that had uh, T. mentagrophytes associated tinea capitis that caused carry-on, which is this dome-shaped inflammatory type of tinea capitis, but these boys had a rash on the legs. And it seems in the medical literature that T. mentagrophytes, trichophyton mentagrophytes, is one of the common causes of erythema nodosum associated tinea capitis type infections. The lesions appeared about one to three weeks after these children and adolescents were put on griseofulvin, which is a treatment for tinea capitis, and the lesions resolved over time with continued use of griseofulvin. The reason I like this paper so much is at first it highlights this association between tinea capitis, especially T. mentagrophytes, and erythema nodosum, but second, it reminds us that 
these rashes are scary. You put the child on this drug, and a week later, the parent comes back and says, you put my child on this drug and look at their rash. The tendency is to say, oh, let's stop the drug. The reality is when you understand this association, you realize that this is erythema nodosum from the tinea, and we need to continue the drug to kill the tinea. We need to kill the trichophyton metagraphites. That's the only way we're going to get rid of the erythema nodosum. And so by recognizing this relationship, you will be prompted to continue the griseofulven, or the itraconazole, or the terbinafine, or the fluconazole, in order to kill the fungal infection. Do check out the article in Dermatology Online Journal, which reviews erythema nodosum, and do check out the publication in Clinical and Experimental Dermatology outlining the erythema nodosum. Finally, an interesting report in the Journal of Cutaneous and Aesthetic Surgery, looking at tinea capitis in two infants. We don't see tinea capitis all that often in infants. We typically see it in three-year-olds, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, nine-year-olds. Tinea capitis is pretty uncommon under the age of one, but this report highlights two interesting cases of tinea capitis in infants. So the first patient was a 10-month-old female, 10% KOH mount, and looking under the microscope showed that there were fungal organisms in the hair follicles called an endothrix. An endothrix are often due to T. tonsorans, T. violaceum, and other things as well, but often trichophyton. The lab didn't show any organism that grew. A scraping was done, it was sent off to the lab, but there was no organism that came back. But trichoscopy showed classic signs of tinea capitis, including comma hairs, corkscrew hairs. This is a free study online, so you may want to check it out, Kumar and Pandi in the Journal of Cutaneous and Aesthetic Surgery. Paper and images are free from Creative Commons licenses. And you can see some of these trichoscopic findings of the comma hairs, horseshoe hairs. Very nice images in this particular paper. The girl was treated with fluconazole, 30 milligrams twice a week for eight weeks, as well as 2% myconazole cream, and she got better. A nice study because it reminds us that we need to use systemic antifungals in treating these children. We can't just use topicals alone. And we'll come back to that in just a minute. The second patient was a three-month-old baby girl. She presented with gray patch tinea capitis, so scaling on the scalp. And a 10% KOH mount showed ectothrix. So these little fungal organisms under the microscope were around the hairs, not in the hairs. Those are ectothrix. And ectothrix are often due to uh, microsporum canis, Amabunii, and other things as well. There's different things that cause ectothrix, which is fungal organisms around the hairs, and different things that cause endothrix, fungal organisms in the hair. But again, nothing grew in the lab. So the scraping was done, sent off to the lab with the hope the lab would send a report saying, this grew something like M. canis, but the lab didn't grow anything. But trichoscopy showed comma hairs, corkscrew hairs, and scaling. The corkscrew hairs and comma hairs are very specific trichoscopic findings of tinea capitis. And again, very nice images in this paper, which I'll include in the show notes, and you may want to check it out. 
This three-month-old was treated with fluconazole, 20 milligrams twice a week, and ketoconazole shampoo, and improved. The tinea capitis resolved. So I really like this study for a couple of reasons. It reminds us that tinea capitis is pretty rare in infants. We see it, we see it in three-year-olds, five-year-olds, but we don't commonly see it in infants. Uh, trichoscopy is incredibly helpful. And there's some very nice studies, publications online, which can guide you through the trichoscopy. We talked a little bit about it in prior episodes, episode two, episode six. Uh, so do check those out. We reviewed some of the key trichoscopic features of tinea capitis. They're pretty powerful. There's some really specific signs of tinea capitis, corkscrew hairs, comma hairs, eye hairs. These are some of the findings which when you see them, it's really suggestive of tinea capitis. Now, you don't see them in all patients. The reason I like this study as well is because there are no FDA-approved treatments for infants. So everything's off-label. And so you have to inform patients when you're doing anything off-label. When you're dealing with a one-year-old and a three-month-old, it's a very little utility to inform the one-year-old and three-month-old. So you have to inform the parents. This is an off-label treatment. But that's really important. So tinea capitis is a really common thing to know about. It affects children, especially children age 3 to 10. Pretty uncommon after puberty. You can see tinea in adults, but it's pretty uncommon. It really affects children to a large extent. Trichophyton and microsporum are the two fungal genera that are the most common causes of tinea capitis. And in different countries, there's different species that are more common. T. tonsorans is the most common species in North America and the UK. And M. canis is the most common in Central Europe and Australia. There's many different forms of tinea capitis. There's this non-inflammatory form, the gray patch, the black dot, diffuse scaling. It looks like dandruff. Then there's the inflammatory form, pustular, favus, carrion. And when you look at these, you immediately think to yourself, wow, this must hurt. It's, it's red, it's boggy, it's tender. Uh, and that's right, often these inflammatory forms of tinea capitis do hurt. When you see tinea capitis, you want to do a culture. It's, it's good to get your trichoscope out and say, ah, there's a comma hair. Ah, it's a corkscrew hair. It's tinea capitis. But do a culture and send it off to the lab. It's really valuable to know the organism, especially if your treatment doesn't work. And your treatment doesn't always work. And so you may be able to focus the treatment depending on the organism that grows. So spend some time learning trichoscopy of tinea capitis if you're a practitioner. It's really valuable. It's really easy to learn what a corkscrew hair is. It looks like a corkscrew. You know what a comma is because you punctuate sentences often. A comma hair looks like a comma. A horseshoe hair looks like a horseshoe. So it's really easy to learn the trichoscopic findings. You just have to spend the time learning. And trichoscopy is really valuable because some of these findings are so specific. You have to use systemic antifungals. You see a little bit of scaling on the scalp, you think, you know what, we'll use some ketoconazole shampoo and you'll be fine. That's not the right approach. We need to use systemic antifungals for most patients. There's a chance of permanent hair loss, especially with the inflammatory forms. And we talked a few episodes ago that about 25% of patients with carry-on can develop permanent scarring. Now, scarring doesn't happen in everyone. But you need to use systemic antifungals. We have terbinafine, 
We have griseofulvin, which is one of the earliest medications. We have itraconazole and we have fluconazole. Now, griseofulvin and terbenafine and itraconazole are certainly among the more common options. In the U.S., griseofulvin, commonly used, terbenafine, commonly used. There's no griseofulvin in Canada. Terbenafine is commonly used. In parts of the U.K. and Europe, itraconazole is very popular. So there's a little bit of differences around the world in prescribing, and, and that's okay. When it comes to M-canis, microsporum canis, griseofulvin is probably better. When it comes to trichophyton species, especially T. tonsorans, terbinafine is probably better than griseofulvin. There's no FDA-approved treatments for infants, so everything is off-label. So you treat with a systemic agent, and you should add on a shampoo as well. So you don't want to use a shampoo alone, but you should add on a shampoo like ketoconazole, selenium sulfide, cyclopyrox. You want to treat the child aggressively. You want to treat the parents, the brothers, the sisters. Ideally, you want to examine the brothers and sisters, and ideally, you want to examine the parents as well. But if they're asymptomatic, you want to make sure that they're using an antifungal shampoo at home, and you want to have close follow-up. You want to have close follow-up for your patient to make sure they resolve. You want to do a culture again, send it off to the lab, see if the organism's been killed. It's a lot of time to do that, but it's worth it. You really want to have mycological cure. You really want to know your organism's been eradicated. So that's really important. And if it's not, you want to keep doing the treatment longer. And so when you look in tables for how long am I supposed to use terbinafine? How long am I supposed to use griseofulvin? That's how long you're supposed to use it if the organism dies and the tinea capitis goes away. But if the tinea capitis doesn't go away, you want to keep the treatment on board. And you want to do a culture again a month later. And if it still isn't gone you might want to consider changing your treatment. And so not all tinea capitis resolves super easy, but fortunately most does, and most people do great. Most children do really well. Children don't have to stay home from school. As soon as they start the first treatment, they can go to school. You want to wash all the brushes, combs, pillows, anything where tinea capitis could reside. We call these fomites. You want to avoid sharing hats. You want to avoid sharing fomites, combs, brushes, when a child has tinea capitis. And one of the reasons that the culture is so important is if the fungal infection comes back showing a zoophilic organism, you might think to yourself, hey, this child may have got this infection from the family pet, the dog, the cat. And then you want to get the vet involved, the veterinarian, to see if the dog has a fungal infection or the cat has a fungal infection, or if they live on a farm, the horse has a fungal infection, or the pig has a fungal infection. That's why the culture is so valuable, because sometimes you get some unusual organisms and you want to know where it's coming from so that you can eradicate the cycle. It's one thing to make the child better, only to go back to playing with the family dog to get the infection again. So that's it for this week, everyone. I want to thank you for joining me again. I really appreciate all the listeners that have joined over these past weeks and uh, I do hope this is helpful and these episodes are made for you so that you can enhance your skills in caring for patients with hair loss and so I thank everyone who listens weekly to these podcasts. We talked about COVID-19 and this important subject about the relationship between COVID-19 and hair loss. It affects women about fivefold greater than men Shedding occurs anywhere from five weeks to 10 weeks after a person gets COVID-19. 
We talked about proton pump inhibitors and the increased risk of iron deficiency, zinc deficiency, magnesium deficiency, calcium deficiency with proton pump inhibitors, and this fascinating body of literature about possible increased risks of, risks of osteoporosis, cancer, uh, meta, um, gut microorganism dysfunction in patients using proton pump inhibitors. So review that literature if you're interested. It's very interesting. We talked about the tremendous stress the pandemic has on pediatric patients. We need to remember that when we're seeing children with various hair loss issues. And finally, we talked about tinea capitis and this unusual association between tinea capitis, especially T. mentagrophytes, and erythema nodosum, this rash on the legs, which goes away once you identify what caused it. And if it's tinea capitis that caused it, we treat with systemic antifungals. We talked about this unusual, rare association of tinea capitis and in infants. We saw a one-year-old and we saw a three-month-old with tinea capitis. Certainly uncommon. These children were treated with fluconazole. Nothing is formally FDA approved for an infant, so we have to use off-label either itraconazole, griseofulvin, terbenafine, or fluconazole. And we talked a little bit about tinea capitis in general and the importance of systemic oral medications to treat patients with tinea capitis and the importance of close follow-up, the importance of culturing it again to make sure that this indeed has been eradicated. Thank you again for listening. If you'd like to connect with our office at any time to learn more about our training programs at the Donovan Hare Academy, or just to offer us your feedback, you can email us. We're at info at donovanhairacademy.com. Next week, we're back talking about the scarring alopecia. The third week of each month is dedicated to scarring alopecia. And I'll look forward to seeing you back here on Evidence-Based Hair. Evidence-Based Hair.